This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about a new phrase, at least it's new to me, pregnancy reductions, the new frontier of death. New York Times writer Ruth Padower recently published one of the most chilling and shocking articles I have read in some time. Entitled Unnatural Selection, the article uses a phrase new to me, pregnancy reductions. A seemingly neutral term, it actually refers to a frequently used procedure of eliminating one of the twins growing in a woman's womb. Let's think about this together. First, a few points of historical development have led to this procedure. Reproductive medicine over the last couple of decades has empowered women and their husbands or partners, if they're lesbians, to make major decisions about the life growing in their womb. With fertility drugs, multiple fetuses are often created. To seemingly lower the risks to both the mothers and their babies that they want to take home, doctors began terminating all but two or three fetuses growing in a mother's womb. Listen to this instructive sentence from Padua's article, quote, With that, pregnancy reduction shifted from a medical decision to an ethical dilemma. As science allows us to intervene more than ever at the beginning and the end of life, it outruns our ability to reach a new moral equilibrium. We still have to work out just how far we are willing to go to construct the lives we want. Close that quote. To construct the lives we want. The focus is on what the autonomous person wants, not the value, not the worth of the child's life. It's what we want. Such a perspective, in my judgment, is both shocking and truly astonishing. The chilling nature of the decision that women face with twin reduction is that it involves selecting one fetus to live over another one. It is also instructive to note the language Padawar uses in her article, Twin Reduction and Singleton, the name given to the surviving fetus after the other fetus is killed, Singleton. How actually does this procedure of twin reduction occur? Costing about $6,500, this procedure, Padawar reports, is usually performed around week 12 of a pregnancy involving a fatal injection of potassium chloride into the chest of the fetus that has been selected to die. The dead fetus shrivels over time but remains in the womb until delivery. Why, according to Padua, do women seek twin reduction? Her argument is that for most women, and this is the phrase she uses, social reasons define the decision. She writes, whatever the particulars, these patients concluded that they lacked the resources to deal with the chaos, stereophonic screaming, and exhaustion of raising twins. They are her words. 
Further, she argues, twin reduction is another example of science empowering women to control their lives. Today, patients in the United States can choose sperm or egg donors based not only on their height, hair color, ethnicity, but also on their academic and athletic accomplishments, their temperament, hairiness, and even the length of a donor's eyelashes. They are all Padua's words. How, then, is the choice of which fetus to kill made in a twin reduction? She writes, if both appear healthy, which is typical of twins, doctors aim for whichever one is easier to reach with that needle filled with potassium chloride. If both are equally accessible, the doctor, the decision of who lives or who dies is random. Doctor just chooses. To the relief of the patients, it is the doctor who chooses, with one exception. If the fetuses are of different sexes, some doctors ask the patients which one they want to keep. And so she concludes, as with reducing two healthy fetuses to one, the underlying premise is the same. This is not what I want for my life. The desires of the woman trump the right of the child to live. Dear people, this leads us now to a second part of this perspective. How should we think about this ghastly development in reproductive medicine? God's view of prenatal life is vastly different than the doctors who perform twin reductions. God's revelation in the Bible has spoken. A thorough examination of his word reveals that God views life in the womb as of infinite value and in need of protection. The challenge is that in most areas of our culture today, in law, politics, many theologians, religious leaders even, refuse to heed God's clear teaching on this issue of prenatal life. Look at just a few passages of Scripture, for example. Exodus 21, 22 through 24. Whatever these difficult verses exactly mean, we see that God views life in the womb as of great value, whether by accident or by an intent to cause a woman to miscarriage demands accountability on the part of the one who caused it. The law did not treat the fetus frivolously. In Isaiah 49, verse 1, verse 5, prophetically referring to Messiah, God called him for his mission from the womb. Life that is prenatal is precious to God. In Jeremiah 1, 5 and in Luke 1, 15, as with Isaiah, God viewed Jeremiah and John the Baptist from the womb as of infinite value and worth. He even filled John with the Holy Spirit when he was in his mother Elizabeth's womb. But in my judgment, no other passage deals with the question of prenatal life so powerfully and so conclusively than Psalm 139. In this wonderful psalm, David reviews four phenomenal attributes of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, and his holiness. In reviewing God's omnipotence, David reviews God's power in creating life, which he compares to God weaving him in his mother's womb. God made his frame, David says, his skeleton. And then, in verse 16, he writes, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Now, undoubtedly and unmistakably, David is here referring to the embryo. 
If correct, then the divine perspective on life is that it begins at conception. Because an embryo that doesn't have any shape, you're only talking of days or a few weeks until you start to see the shape of a human being. God is so awesome, David concludes, that his omniscience and his omnipotence, all that he knew about David, even when he was an embryo. In my judgment, this then is God's view of prenatal life and his judgment on twin reduction. It is not a reduction. From the perspective of God's word, it is murder. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about what is going on again in the Arab world. An Arab spring or an Arab transition? As I am taping this, it appears that the country of Libya is now completely in control of the rebels. Decades of authoritarian rule under Muammar Gaddafi are over. Again, as I'm taping this, we don't know where he is. We don't know what the specific situation is. But in all likelihood, it appears, almost without question, that Gaddafi is done. Libya will enter a new time of transition. In addition, this spring we've seen regime change in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Yemen, and perhaps even Syria, because today, as I'm taping this, the nation of Syria remains very unstable. So it's appropriate now to ask, where is this, what reporters are calling, what governments are calling, where is this Arab Spring headed? Quite frankly, no one really knows what all this means and what the results will be. Perhaps it's better to refer to this as a time of Arab transition rather than Arab Spring, because the term spring connotes an emerging democratic Arab world, somewhat like we saw after the fall of communism in Central Europe. Well, I'm not certain that's true. Many of these Arab nations are characterized by tribal societies, and how these various tribes will mesh together in these respective nations is truly not known. Further, in several of these nations, other Middle Eastern powers are very much working behind the scenes. So let me to focus on two key aspects of this Arab transition. First of all, a thought about Syria. Columnist David Ignatius writes, The Syrian confrontation is already devolving into a regional proxy war. Iran has been rushing assistance to Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, who is Tehran, Iran's capital, key Arab ally. And it provides a lifeline to Hezbollah militia in Lebanon. To counter the Iranians, a newly emboldened Saudi Arabia has been pumping money to Sunni fighters in Syria. So Damascus is now a fault line for Sunni-Shiite tensions and for the confrontation between Iran and the United States and Israel. As Ignatius argues, it is doubtful that this time of transition in the Arab world will be good for economic development. Indeed, it will probably slow it considerably. Few will be interested in investing in these societies until there's some certainty about the emergence of this new order and what its nature, what its qualities and characteristics will be. Secondly, if indeed a democratic order emerges in these nations, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, perhaps Syria, 
If it does indeed emerge, it will likely disappoint many, if not almost everyone. The protesters in these various nations have been demanding jobs, freedom from the secret police, and personal dignity. The impatience of the protesters is obvious, but it is doubtful that they will, they will see these rights that they are seeking realized very soon. If you look at Asia, for example, and specifically China, those countries have placed economic reform ahead of political reform, and it has worked, at least to some extent. Will these Arab protesters who have led this transition be patient? Will they wait? Finally, these various Arab nations now in transition will need to rise above their sect and tribal loyalties and embrace a tolerance and a spirit of cooperation to build a new nation based on respect and tolerance of all the differences within their nations of religion, ethnicity, and tribes. This is a tall order, and many are not convinced that these nations can pull it off. Civil war, therefore, is a real possibility in some of these nations as the various tribal groups and sects begin to compete for power. An example of what this could look like is Iraq. With Saddam Hussein gone, the old tribal and religious loyalties are now paramount. The good of the nation as a whole is subjugated, is subordinated, is put under the tribal and religious loyalties. This time of Arab transition is perplexing and problematic. No one knows where this will all end. This leads me, secondly, in this discussion about this Arab transition, to some thoughts about Israel. It faces Hezbollah to the north, as you know, and the uncertainty in Syria could dramatically affect the status of Hezbollah. Let me explain that. Israel fought two wars in Lebanon, one a very long one that started in 1983, ended in 2000. The second one occurred a few weeks in the summer of 2006. From the first Lebanon war emerged Hezbollah, playing on the long-oppressed Shiite population in Lebanon and blessed bounteously by Iran. The second war in the summer of 2006 did indeed deter Hezbollah. But today, UN peacekeepers have proven both unable and unwilling to fulfill the mandate of keeping rockets and military armaments from flowing into Hezbollah's coffers. In fact, Hezbollah now has over 50,000 rockets, four times the number it had in the summer of 2006. Now, Israel's anti-ballistic missile system is very effective. It has already intercepted eight missiles fired by Hezbollah. But the fundamental result of all of these developments occurring in the Arab world, and especially what eventually will happen in Syria, will affect Hezbollah. Lebanon is no longer an independent nation, leaning to the West, as it had been for decades. It is, in the words of Michael Oren, Israel's ambassador to the United States, a terrorist stronghold supplied by Syria and subservient to Iran. If the Syrian regime crumbles, the influence of Iran in Lebanon could also diminish. But neither of these possibilities is certain. 
The developments in Syria, therefore, are of real interest to Israel. What has occurred in Lebanon with Hezbollah is important for Israel's future. It cannot permit a future Palestinian state that they currently are negotiating about on the West Bank to become a terrorist stronghold as Lebanon has become under Hezbollah. Dear people, much is at stake for Israel in how this time of Arab transition plays out. Will Assad remain the authoritarian dictator of Syria? If he falls, Hezbollah could lose, and I emphasize could lose, its pipeline flowing from Iran, a pipeline of rockets and armaments into southern Lebanon, where Hezbollah is strongest. If the authoritarian regime of Syria succeeds in being stabilized, he could even further embolden Hezbollah because Iran's support of Syria will have been victorious. So these are troubling times. So many seem optimistic about this time of Arab transition. There are so many issues that remain unresolved, so many possible scenarios. Right now, from my vantage point, at this point in time, it's not necessarily something to be optimistic about. These are very troubling times in the Middle East, and it's hard to know exactly how all of this will shake out. Stay tuned. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the health care legislation that was passed last summer. There is a growing possibility that this will be declared unconstitutional. Let me explain. The provision in President Obama's health care law requiring Americans to purchase health insurance or face tax penalties was ruled unconstitutional on August the 12th by the United States Court of Appeals of the 11th Circuit in Atlanta, Georgia. That piece of led part of the legislation requiring individuals to purchase health insurance or face tax penalties will be implemented in the year 2014. But the Circuit Court of Appeals, the 11th Circuit, has declared it unconstitutional. The court ruled that Congress exceeded its powers to regulate interstate commerce when it decided to require people to buy health insurance. In the law, this is called the individual mandate. Now, incidentally, the rest of the wide-ranging law was allowed to stand. The 11th Circuit Court argued that Congress, and these are the words of their decision, quote, cannot, under the Commerce Clause, mandate that individuals enter into contracts with private insurance companies for the purchase of an expensive product from the time they're born until the time they die, close that quote. The court also ruled in its opinion of August 12th that the individual mandate, and these are the words of the court, is breathtaking in its expansive scope. The government's position amounts to an argument that the mere fact of an individual's existence substantially affects interstate commerce, and therefore Congress may regulate them at every point of their life. This theory, this is a very important sentence in their decision, this theory affords no limiting principles in which to confine Congress's enumerated power. Close that quote. 
in effect, the argument of the 11th Circuit Court in Atlanta is compelling, and it is the first real challenge to the constitutionality of the so-called individual mandate. This opinion is both erudite and persuasive. There is little doubt, therefore, that the United States Supreme Court will need to rule on the constitutionality of this provision. For the first time since it was passed last summer, this provision of the health care legislation is in real jeopardy. We are facing, since that law was passed, a systematic and well thought through and compelling case against the individual mandate. Now, I remind you that the rest of the law was allowed to stand. It is only that provision that requires Americans to purchase health insurance or face penalties from the United States government. And if that crumbles, if that is declared unconstitutional and it stands, presumably under United States Supreme Court review, the rest of the legislation would go into effect. But without that requirement, the vital center of the law has been eliminated. So it would still leave that issue that presumably is what caused the Congress and Obama to push for it, the 38 to 40 million people in the United States who don't have health insurance would still not have health insurance. Because this provision, this individual mandates, requires them to have health insurance. With that gone, the vital center of the law is gone. So much is at stake here. This isn't a tertiary issue. This is a primary issue. The entire success of Obama's health care law rides on this ma being maintained as constitutionally viable. At this point, and I am not a prophet, but at this point, it would seem to me that the United States Supreme Court, perhaps as early as next spring, will rule on this legislation. And there is a real possibility, the way the court is now constructed, that they would strike down this provision of the health care legislation. We're going to have to see, but perhaps as early as next spring, the court will be asked to rule on this. There have been other challenges to this health care legislation, and two other challenges have basically upheld the law. We're still waiting for one more challenge. I believe it's from the, the circuit court that is in Tennessee. We'll have to see how that ruling comes down. But I think we're now at bottom line conclusions. The United States Supreme Court is going to have to make the decision. Is this health care law, and specifically the provision of the individual mandate, a constitutionally viable provision? The 11th Circuit Court has said no. One other circuit court has said yes. Ultimately, therefore, the Supreme Court is going to have to make the decision. As with the transition in the Arab world, so it is with the future of this legislation. Stay tuned. We're going to have to see how the courts ultimately decide on the viability of this centerpiece of Obama's first term as president, the health care legislation. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, president of Grace University. 
Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.